Welcome to our evening service. Our preacher this evening is Jeff Thomas. And after the evening service, then please join with us downstairs afterwards for tea and coffee. And then for the week, we have our prayer meeting on Tuesday at 7.30. And then on Wednesday at 11 a.m., we have the women's Bible study. And then on Wednesday, we've been speaking to uh, Chris and Kate. It's nice to see you as well, Chris, with Sarah. We've been speaking to them about um, how we can spend more time with them. And so they've said that on Wednesday evening, just after the kids have gone to bed, maybe half seven, eight o'clock, I will say eight o'clock, Wednesday evening, if you want to visit the Iliffs, that would be the time to go. Um, so it's kind of a, an open house on Wednesday after 8 o'clock in the Iliffs. And Chris is here tonight if you want to speak to Chris about that, or otherwise you can speak to me and we'll sort something out in terms of lifts if you need a lift and things. And then on Friday, there's a Rise to Pray in the Salvation Army Hall at 8 a.m. On Friday evening at 7 o'clock, we have Seekers. And then next... Sunday, we'll have um, John Noble preaching for us at 10.30 in the morning, and then Eric Taylor at 6 o'clock, and then next Sunday is Fellowship Lunch as well, so if you can remember, Fellowship Lunch next Sunday. And that's all the announcements, thank you. from time to time where are those books he promised us he forgot so uh, I reminded him and he has put them in the post and so before the end of term uh, you'll get a a copy of those books but also now I have um, uh, copies of uh, J.C. Ryle's Holiness it's been uh, newly uh, typeset most attractively and uh, any young people or students who say they'll read it I'm not interested in adding it to your shelves of unread books, but if you say that you are prepared to read it, um, then please, uh, we'll get a bit of paper and your name and address, and you'll have a free, free copy of a book that will change your life, J.C. Ryle's uh, Holiness. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's sing to God's praise our opening hymn, number 159, Precious Jesus, Friend of Sinners, we as such to thee draw near. 159.
Now we'll read from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, hear the word of God. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You lay down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I wouldn't be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart. As I learn your righteous laws, I will obey your decrees. Do not 
utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Don't let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I'm a stranger on earth. Don't hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They're my counselors. May God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. Now we'll sing a hymn of repentance, 405, Isaac Watts. Show pity, Lord, O Lord, forgive. Let a repenting rebel live, 405.
Now let's pray. Oh, that every word we sung to thee came from our hearts. That thou dost not despise a broken and a contrite spirit. And we would ever have that, Lord. How great and holy thou art. How insignificant and small are we. Thou hast said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, pour out such blessedness upon us as a people, upon the preacher especially, and upon every Christian here, and upon those that are close to the kingdom of God, but haven't crossed the border yet. Only thy mighty power can do that for them. So in thy mercy, draw favored sinners to thee this evening, here and where the gospel's preached in our town and county and principality and United Kingdom and in the continent of Europe, in countries where there are so few gospel congregations. Protect them. Protect thy harassed and provoked and hunted people tonight. And those that are separated from their loved ones because of the intolerable hatred of uh, the enemy. We pray, loving God, thou wilt be with them richly and bless them in their separation. We thank thee, O Lord, for thy goodness to us, the peace that we enjoy, and the particular favored blessings that thy people know for the arrival of a healthy baby. We give thee thanks, O Lord, and we commend her parents to thee at this time. We beseech thee, O Lord, to watch over every one of us with our aches and pains and lumps and bumps and fears. Lord, we commend ourselves to thee. Thou hast decreed how long we should live and hast appointed a day when our last breath will be taken. May we live for thee. May we live with thee. May we be useful every day of our lives. We pray thy blessing upon the word of God tonight, that we will all believe it and respond as Christians should respond to such a treasure. Wherever thy word is honored, help and protect thy people. Where there are those then under pressure, under threat, because their conscience is bound captive to the word of God, and they are being threatened. Lord, give them wisdom and those who defend them and grant a better day to come for the church of Jesus Christ and the honor and glory of our Savior. Revive thy work in these days, most tender and loving God. And so we commend our hour of worship to thee tonight. Do us all much good for the honor of Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. 
Amen. Let's sing hymn number 750. And you know at the end of it you repeat the first verse. Ye pilgrims of Zion and chosen of God, whose spirits are filled with dismay, since ye have eternal redemption through blood, ye cannot but hold on your way. 750. Turn again to the second letter of Paul to Timothy, 
and chapter 3, and the last words of the third chapter, known to all of you, 2 Timothy 3, um, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, how important is the Bible? Let me ask the question in this way. How important is it that we all have the same attitude to the Bible as God the Son and his divinely appointed and commissioned apostles? If we don't have that attitude, then in that area of our lives, we are not following the Lord Jesus Christ, are we? We're not Christians in that area of our lives. We may hold to many of the morals that are taught by Jesus, but we are not following his teaching on the Bible. Now, is that important? And it seems to me it is very, very important. And the passage before us tonight is an important testimony to the nature of the Bible and its divine origin. It is one of the first Christian, first verses that young Christians memorize. It is one of the three sixteens of the Bible. Um, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof, correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I know it in the authorized version, as many of you, but this is a perfectly fine translation. It is the testimony that the Holy Spirit gives to Scripture. First thing, I just have two halves tonight. The first thing I want to talk to you about is how Christ's apostle teaches us that the Bible is God-breathed. And the implications of that, I want to look at that first of all tonight. Paul makes a number of important statements in the text before us. He says scripture is the voice of God. It is God-breathed. It is God's exhalation rather than inhalation, which is what the word inspired might convey to you. Um, have you ever tried to speak as you inhale? You know it's possible, but it's distorted because your larynx is built to respond to air breathing up out of the lungs, not down through the larynx into your lungs. I'll show you what I mean. I try to recite the first letters of the alphabet by breathing in, and it's not very pleasant. A, P, C, D. That's inhaling. Scripture is not God inhaling. It is God breathing out. God exhaling. You see the implications of that. The Bible is the voice of God. The Bible is God talking. And then you see all of Scripture is the breath of God. That's what we mean when we refer to the buzzword is the plenary nature of inspiration. All the books in the canon of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation 
are equally inspired, they are not all equally important. We are not equally inspired by reading the first three chapters of First Chronicles as we are if we read the Gospel of John 1920 and 21, the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there was a purpose that God had in recording those Old Testament books in their every detail, in what Jesus says, in their jots and their titles. Now, Pilgrim's Progress is a great book, but it's not inspired in the sense that the Bible is inspired. Grace hymns, Christian hymns, Trinity hymnals, fine hymnals, they are not the voice of God like the Bible. Scripture is the only rule given to us to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. There are a lot of preachers and church officers who like to go through the scriptures with scissors and paste and cut out things they don't agree with. They agree with the great evangelical parts that God is love. But then they spurn the other parts. They have the doctrine of limited inspiration. Thomas Jefferson, one of the early presidents of the USA, went through the gospel. He cut out all the miracles of Jesus Christ because he said no reasonable man could possibly believe that Jesus did those miracles. But ah, Jesus' ethical teaching, oh, what heights, how sublime. It's inspired, it's marvelous stuff in the history of the world. I love it. The miracles, well, they're extraneous to Christianity. I cut them out of the Bible. Paul is saying here, all scripture is God-breathed. And notice the word that he uses. He uses the word scripture. He's talking about a script. Something that is written down. It's not just that the, the authors of the New Testament were themselves inspired, or their thoughts were inspired. It is the words they wrote down that they inscripturated in the Bible, those words, those sentences, paragraphs, letters, gospels, histories, were inspired. It is not just that God moved by the Holy Spirit in holy men, that they had inspired ideas about him. They did. But he caused them to write down on clay tablets and later on papyrus scrolls precisely his messages, his psalms of praise, his letters, his accounts of the life of the prophets and the apostles, and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul um, speaks to the Thessalonians. He writes to them and he says to them, I thank God that you received my word, not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now that's an apostle. And he is in his self-consciousness explaining to us that the word of Scripture that they read publicly in the church, and many of them charged memory cells to retain every word of it, it was the word of God. And so we have a high view 
of Scripture as Christians because it was Jesus' view. And the Bible tells us so. Here's how you are to think about this book. Now, when I was in Korea, I uh, was told that uh, Korean Christians will never put the Bible on the floor. They always put it on the pew or on a, the place of the rack in front of them. Um, and if they can't do that, they will keep it under their arm. They, they value it too much. It's the word of God. They won't put it on the floor. Well, we, we don't think like that. But they think like that because they treasure the word of God. They've suffered for the word of God. And then I want to say that all the Bible is infallible. It's inerrant. In other words, it is exactly what God wanted to be recorded as coming from him. It is from God, from the God who cannot lie. The God who um, prevents John on the island of Patmos hurriedly writing down some things. And the Lord speaks to him and says, don't write those things. Twice he says that to him and he controls his pen. So, Scripture is characterized by freedom from teaching errors. Now, that doesn't make it unique. There are lots of things you buy, uh, your electronic gadgets, your tablets, and uh, your computers, and your uh, white-walled machinery in the kitchen, and there's always a manual that goes with it. It's generally free from error. And if the manufacturer discovers that they've uh, made a mistake, then they'll bring out a new edition and they'll correct it. So they are working for a, a publication that is free from error. There are no new editions of the Bible. There are no further claims that the Lord Jesus failed to say things that were that would have been essential for us to know in the 21st century. There have been additions, the Koran, the traditions of Rome, the Book of Mormon, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, full of errors, not the scripture. The 689 Confession of Faith says, the authority of Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the word of God. That's our confession of faith. Many ministers find this objectionable. They claim that it's bibliolatry. But if we worship Jesus Christ as the incarnation of God, the one who claimed, I am the truth, we simply ask, what was Jesus Christ's view of Scripture? And once we learn what it was, then we conform our thinking and our judgments to him. If we want to be 100%, 24-7 disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, then our view of Scripture is to be the same as his. Well, what was his view? Well, you know, for example, when he was tempted full frontally by Satan in the wilderness, 
What did he do? He cited the book of Deuteronomy three times, and each time he said, it is written. And that's the end. It is written. It is written. When his contemporaries were arguing about divorce or about the right view of the Sabbath, then Jesus answered them by citing the Bible. He said to his opponents, you err, you make mistakes. You are confused, you are muddled because... You don't know the scriptures. People say, ah, but Jesus was a child of his time. We are children of our time, of this pathetic, godless age in which we live. He was the son of God. He was the eternal one who took frail flesh and lived among us. On the road to Emmaus, the risen Jesus Christ, then met with Cleopas and his companion, And uh, the bottom had dropped out of their lives. They were in dark despair. And what did he do? He took them through the Bible. He rebuked them for failing to believe the Bible. Oh, fools and slow of heart not to believe everything that Scripture has spoken. When he hung upon the cross, he was citing the Psalms. He never appeals to anything else. He never makes a single reference to the books of the Apocrypha. And that is why they are not bound together in our Bibles with the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. They contain many truths, but they are not wholly the breath of God. There is also bad breath in them. So they are never quoted by Christ. There is no doubting then that Jesus believed that the Scriptures were the infallible word of God. And we have no choice If we say, um, he can say nothing wrong, he is God the Son, then we have no choice but to believe what he believed. He's smarter than me, he's better than me, he's holier than me, he's wiser than me. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, then you must believe what he believes. If you call yourself a Christian, you must love the word of God as he loved The Word of God. These years have been very important in the time of the history of the huge 13 million membership of the Southern Baptist Convention. 13 times bigger than the membership of the Church of England. And there was recently a debate that went on on the floor of its annual convention. One of the most important denominational papers, Baptist Faith, and message was about to be changed. For many years it had said, Jesus is our final authority. But the editors of, uh, the new editors of the Baptist faith and message, all of them were consistently Bible-believing men. They were changing the foundation of the magazine to affirm the inerrancy and the inspiration and the final authority of the Bible. So they changed a clause in the Baptist faith and message to make that very clear, that Baptists submitted to the authority of Scripture. So there was a debate. And a modernist commissioner stood up and he said, I don't like this. You're making us declare our allegiance to a book. But my allegiance isn't to a book. We don't worship a book. We worship a person, Jesus So our ultimate authority should be him, not a book. 
Now everyone in the vast auditorium, aware of the tensions that were going on, held their breath. 15,000 delegates in a big uh, um, basketball (laughs) court um, would have been taken over and used for this purpose. We're wondering who's going to answer this man. From the platform, then, the principal, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in, uh, in Louisville, Al Mola, Dr. Al Mola, a great champion of the faith, he got up and he walked to the microphone. He said, that, my friends, is exactly the issue that is before us. Can we pit Jesus against the word of God? Or does Jesus teach us to accept the authority of God? And he did a little Bible study like I just did, referring to um, Jesus' use of the Bible and quotes of the Bible and saying to his father uh, the, uh, the scripture then is thy word is truth and it can't be broken and so on and so on. And he showed how Jesus accepted the authority of God's word. You can't pit Jesus versus God's word because Jesus is the word made flesh and he himself by the Holy Spirit gives us the word of God. And so these two things are not in competition. Uh, you know Don Carson. You know Don's been now three times to the Abba Conference and spoken here. He lives in Chicago. He teaches in Trinity Evangelical Divinity School there. And uh, he was lecturing uh, last year on um, the Apostle Paul. And a liberal scholar, she came along, she raised her hand, and she challenged him in his interpretation of Paul. Now, that liberal scholar held this view that it is not the words of the verses of the Bible that determine their meaning. It's we. We determine what the words mean. So she challenged Don with a question. Now, what he did was he repeated her question back to her as she had spoken it, except in the negative. He was giving her words the very opposite meaning. She frowned then and she shook her head. She said, no, you don't understand me. Let me ask my question again. She asked her question again. And once again, Don Carson repeated it back to her as she had said it, except he put it in the negative. With great frustration, she said, no, no, that's not what I'm asking. And he said to her, ma'am, you seem to be very concerned that I take your words exactly as you are saying them. And all I'm asking is that people do the same for the Apostle Paul. Because we may not change Paul's meaning on those occasions when we don't agree with it. We cannot make up the Christian religion as we go along. We need to listen to what Jesus and the apostles are saying because that alone is Christianity. We're asking for honesty, especially in the pulpit. And when I came here 50 years ago, the chairman of the deacons resigned after a year And in his gracious letter to me, he said that he was, in fact, a Unitarian. He didn't believe that Jesus was God. 
but he was not prepared to lead a campaign opposing me, for that would have been purely, he wrote in the letter, for political reasons. And I much appreciated his honesty. And I always got on well with him and in other contexts, uh, uh, hospital chaplaincy and so on. Um, I, I admired him very much and got on with him until he died. You see how inconsistent it would be to say, the Gospels are not true, but I believe them and preach them. And any sensible congregation would, what are you talking about? They would say, that's crazy. If you don't believe that they are true, then stop preaching to us. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you say, I'm a follower of Christ, but whatever he thought about the Bible, I don't think it's the word of God. You are a selective admirer of the Lord Jesus. And I have uh, written, you saw a letter I wrote uh, to the, the ministers of the town here. I said, I, I'd love to meet with you as long as we have discussions and debates about uh, the virgin birth and the creation and the fall of man and the meaning of the, of the cross of Christ. But if we're all going in to slap one another on the back and call one another brother or sister then it's impossible for me to do that. Ligon Duncan is the um, principal of um, the Reform Seminary in, in Jackson, Mississippi. and He was a student. He did his PhD in, in Edinburgh. And he, depended, he uh, attended a, a, a debate on the nature of Scripture when he was there between a fine evangelical called... Uh, Dr. Nigel Cameron, and a man named Graham Old, who was the head of Old Testament Department, a radical liberal. They were debating the doctrine of Scripture, specifically this issue of inspiration. Has God taken care of the whole writing of all the books of the Bible so that they are just as he wants us to have them in 2016? And at one point in the debate, Dr. Cameron said to Dr. Old, tell me, what do you think inspiration means? When you say that you believe the Bible is inspired, when you quote 2 Timothy 3.16, what do you think God breathed means? And uh, Graham Old then said exactly what you would expect a 20th century person to do. It was still in the 20th century, it was 1989 that this, this occurred. He said, I think the Bible is inspired because it inspires me. That's what he said. Dr. Cameron then rolled back in his chain. He said, ah, you're a Coleridgean. A what? Said <laughs> Dr. Older, What? You know, Coleridge, and that is exactly what Samuel Taylor Coleridge said last century. And, of course, it's completely wrong. And no confessional Christian for 2,000 years has ever believed that about the Word of God. 
That's what the, in other words, that's what the romantic poets of the 19th century wrote. He said, we admire the Bible. The Sermon on the Mount, oh, we, we admire it. John chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, it inspires us. And so we can say the Bible is inspired. They believed it was subjectively inspired. You heard it read. Sometimes it gives you goose pimples. And by the goose pimple standard, it was inspired. It turned them on. What we have in this text before you tonight, very clear, those words are very straightforward, is an objective statement about the word of God. These words of an apostle of Jesus Christ teach us with all the authority of the incarnate God, the word made flesh, I and my Father are one, that all the written words of the Bible are God's words. They are so much God's words that we can speak of them as the very breath of the Almighty. You smell the fragrance of the breath of your beloved. You know her, his nearness. And we smell the same fragrance in Scripture. It's the breath of heaven in this stinking world. You know, men and women, this congregation exists as it does because there were men and women who were committed to making sure that every man and woman, every student, every boy and girl, every visitor would benefit from understanding that the Bible was the word of God. And they had this high view of Scripture because it was their Savior, Jesus Christ's view of Scripture. And of course, that's where Paul is going here. He doesn't want just some theoretical dogma uh, for Christians to fight about. That's, That's not what he's doing. He's calling Timothy and he's calling the Ephesian Christians uh, in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor. He's calling you and me not just to say that you have a high view of Scripture. It affects you. It changes how you think, what your values are, what you say, what you believe. You believe it's the inspired word of God. You say, well, live by the book. Live by the book when it makes you uncomfortable. Live by the book on dark, cold, wet days. Live by the book when you struggle to understand and grasp the truth of Scripture. A pastor friend was in a meeting and there was an evangelical Anglican pastor, theologian there. He was doing a devotional. I think he was speaking about uh, Isaiah 50. He spoke about how God would restore and strengthen the weary ones with a word. With a word. And he said these words in his devotional. My friend was listening to him. He said, you know, I very much 
resented the word-centeredness of the Reformed faith. I very much resented it because I like pictures. I like video. I like the images that are shown me. And then he went on to disclose, uh, to discourse about the glories of the new Star Wars film. How brilliant the, uh, the photography and the special effects were. Then he said this. Though I very much resent the word-centeredness of the Reformed faith, because my personal inclination is for pictures and images and videos, I accept the word-centeredness of the Reformed faith. Because that is what the Bible teaches. That is what Jesus teaches. Well, my friend hearing him was tickled pink. He was delighted. He was a person who every natural inclination was to want something else. But he came to the Bible and the scripture told him, you're wrong. And so he said, God's right. God is right. Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. I'll go with the book. Now, there are a hundred applications of that to us all tonight. Because all of us have got certain inclinations that need to be measured and judged and corrected and modified and exalted and purified by the Word of God, by the grace of God. Our inclinations can change and our obedience can be brought into into account. By, by the Bible. That's the first thing I wanted to say to you. And then the other thing I wanted to say to you is that uh, Christ's apostles teach us that the Bible is also useful. Scripture is profitable. It's beneficial. This is what he says. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, in other words, he's not saying, out there, there is a book with pages, a certain weight, a certain smell, a certain appearance. Uh, that book, that, that Bible. And it is objectively the Word of God. The only book in all the world that you can say that about as much as the sky objectively is above us and it's blue, so scripture objectively is there and it's useful. That's what he's saying. More than that, it's useful. It, it's useful for me. It's helpful for me in my life. It's profitable. You know, a lot of people will say that the job of a preacher is... Uh, to make the Bible relevant. Well, I want to tell you that the Apostle Paul says, no, it's not the job of the preacher to make the Bible relevant. It is already. It is the job of the preacher to make sure that he doesn't make the Bible irrelevant. Because the Bible is already relevant. It is already helpful to you. Whenever I face a congregation... However many or few they are, whatever their states or their conditions, I have something absolutely relevant to say 
to every one of you from the Bible. It is useful for you. It is profitable for you. You know, um, you wouldn't think it, it was very profound if some people got up here one day and they gave a talk on petrol. And they said, petrol is relevant to the running of a car. You'd yawn. Oh, wasting my time in saying the obvious. Well, to talk about uh, the word of God, that, that it was simply relevant, is wasting our time because it is saying the obvious. It is not only relevant, it is absolutely essential. It is as essential as the law of gravity. The word of God is helpful, it's useful, it's profitable. It's the most practical book in the world. He says here in our text that by studying and, 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 and reading and learning Scripture, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So then, um, study, going away from home, Meeting someone. Being with a member of the opposite sex. Getting married. Becoming a parent. Having a demanding job. Paying your bills. Working in the church. Growing old. Getting sick. Having dementia. Dying. You are not half equipped... You're not complaining that God merely gave you the Bible. You're not a victim. You have something in the Bible that thoroughly equips you for all those good works and how men and women of God should behave at all those stages in your life. Paul isn't generalizing uh, when he uses this expression, the man of God, he's talking to Timothy and... um, It's the phrase in the Old Testament that uh, refers to the prophet. He's not saying you're an archetypal man here. He's talking about him as a a representative, a spokesman, a preacher of God's message. And he's saying to him that uh, as he does his work, the, the work of the prophet will be handed on, that he'll teach men who will be able to teach others also. And the word of God will go on if he is using the word of God with the respect and the truth as, as it is. The, the, the Bible is designed to mold us and strengthen us and enrich us and purify us. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Timothy was young. Timothy was doubting his own ability. Timothy was seeing the churches all around him, going all over the shop. And Hymenetus and Philetus, oh, they were just gathering people around them. Be armed with the scripture. That's it. God has given you the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The power of the spirit. There's nothing that you cannot accomplish. 
you are just absolutely up to date for 2016 and the latest theories and ideas that men and women in the world will have and they have the media in their pockets and we have wise, helpful words that silence the gainsayer. The scriptures are able to make you thoroughly equipped, complete. In other words, it's saying to us, churches where preachers don't believe that the Bible is the breath of God are incomplete churches. They are not equipped for the work that God has given them to do. The scriptures alone are sufficient to make God's people complete. But where can they take you? Where can scripture take you? Well, it could take a man like Keith Underhill, and it could take him to Kenya. It could take him to build scores of churches and leave a, a memory of gratitude and thankfulness amongst hundreds, thousands of Kenyan Christians. It can thoroughly equip you to every good work. What lies before us? Well, you know, what does lie before the church? What does lie before gospel Christians? What challenges, what sacrifices are we called upon? What burdens are we going to be asked to bear? What challenges are we going to meet? The Bible will equip us for them all. How will we become mature men and women? How will we become wise? It's through the Bible. That is the divine way. How will we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Through the Bible. That's God's way. It is scripture that sanctifies Jesus. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's what he prays. The scripture enables us to do every good work, every mountain God asks you to climb, every cross God asks you to bear, every service God asks you to give, every pressure God asks you to endure, every sacrifice that God asks you to make. Scriptures will enable you to do so. They'll tell you how to do it, why it should be done. They'll give you strength for the task, and if you're wandering away, they'll warn you and pull you back to the narrow path. The scriptures then will complete the good work that God began when he brought you to meet other Christians. And when you first heard the gospel through them. And you came and you listened to the word of God week by week. And the scriptures then, the, the word of God helps you, helps you. You go on by it. The Bible helps us to put away childish things. The Bible saves a man from being a wimp. Delivers him from being a nerd. It transforms him into being the man of God, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's just a wonderful blessing. A supernatural blessing. And so when we gather together, the climax of our, of our worship together is God speaking to us in the word of God. And us listening. Say, feed me now and evermore. What are the uses of the Bible that he tells us in this, uh, this verse before us? It's profitable, he says, for teaching. The Bible is profitable for teaching, yes. For reproving, for correcting, for training in 
righteousness. It's useful. It's beneficial. It's a practical tool. It's useful for discipleship. It's useful for people who are serious about being Christians. They're being taught and corrected and steered in the right direction and trained in righteous living. It's profitable for godliness. It's the inspired word of God. That the man of God may be competent. Equipped for every good work. Now one consequence for Wales as a church going people. uh, As it was told all through the last century in so many many of the churches. Not to have confidence any longer in the truthfulness of the Bible. And when uh, congregations then. Listen to that. It was told them so very often in very subtle ways. They lost confidence in the Bible's relevance to help them. And ability to equip them for life. And nothing was given to them by the preachers to replace that. There was where they had and he gave them. He gave them Freud. And there was Soper and he gave them Marx. And here's the Bible. And here's Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. And Paul is telling us that the Bible is great for teaching. For instructing. It addresses the mind. You bring your mind. You bring your brains with you. And you listen to the word of God. And uh, it's great for rebuking. Say, hey, what have you been doing on a Saturday night? What are you doing in your behavior? What, what? It addresses our consciences. And then it's great for correcting um, our personalities. We, we are awkward. Every Christian has got personality problems. And we're not what we might have been if the Bible had not come into our lives and oh, elevated and ennobled and enriched us in so many ways. And it is good for training. It, it presents us with a lifestyle. How are you to live? How are you to get on with your parents and get on with members of the opposite sex? And how you are to be with children and young people? And how you are to be with your neighbors? And the Bible teaches you all these things. So we go to the Bible and we say, Now teach me, Lord. Train me, rebuke me, correct me, and instruct me in righteousness. Nothing can help our emotional problems like the Bible can. Don't put yourself down because you have painful shyness or because you have bouts of depression and you're getting help from uh, doctors and pharmacists or because you have a worrying disposition or because you have irrational phobias and anxieties. Don't rubbish yourself. God listens to Christians like you. And you say, Lord, here am I with my, 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 my troubles and my worries about the future. God has greatly used such people. Um, David Brainerd. He was an extraordinary evangelist. William Cooper, one of the greatest of all hymnists. They both suffered from melancholy. Baby Warfield's wife was an invalid throughout their marriage. So was William Carey's. 
first wife. So was Charles Hadley Spurgeon's, J.C. Ryle's second wife, Brian Edwards' first wife. Their husbands care for them. Didn't prevent them being eminent defenders of the Christian faith. None of their colleagues or church members told them that they ought to give up their preaching and pastoring and sit with their wives. Their friends loved them too much, profited too much from their ministries. In fact, having those sick wives then enriched their preaching. So the Bible comes. The Bible comes with its, with its divine authority. It scrutinizes our lives. It challenges us. It encourages us. It helps us to believe. And it starts to produce love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. There's no secret to how you can live the happy Christian life. (laughs) Read the Bible. Obey the Bible. Know it. Sit at the feet of the wonderful counselor. Let him speak to you. You know, Paul talks to Timothy here, and he talks about his own experience, and twice he says to Timothy, you know, verse 10 and verse 14, you know these things. You know how scripture changed your family. You know what it did when your grandmother, Lois, first heard it. And the change that happened in her. And how it influenced your mother, Eunice. And you know how it's changed you. You know what happened to Saul of Tarsus. That uh, bloodthirsty criminal judge. The great inquisitor general. And how his life was transformed. When the word of God came to him from the living Jesus. Timothy saw it. He knew it at close quarters. He saw the word at work. He saw how the church could be kept. Kept from men who denied the resurrection like Hymenaeus and Philetus. From infancy he had known the scriptures. And the Bible helped him. The Bible helped him to grow. Timothy himself to cite Calvin, drunk in godliness with his mother's milk. Some of you are at sea. Some of you are easily influenced by other people. You're too nice at times. You, you want to be all things to all men. You can't be. You must be all things to God, first of all. And you must judge then how you treat other people in with judgment day honesty before God. Thomas Watson says, think in every line you read that God is speaking to you. See, the great problem is not the Bible. The great problem is you and me. The great problem is our various appetites or our lack of appetites. We read the opening psalm of the book of Psalms, and we meet the blessed man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, standeth in the way of sinners, sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight, his delight, is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates. Day and night, we are told. Here's a man who really loves the Bible. Now the searching test of Christianity, or any man or woman, not only that we, uh, we believe what the confession of faith says about Scripture or Jesus says about Scripture, uh, 
or that we read it diligently, or we sit under the best preaching we can hear day by day, but that we love it. We have fallen in love with the Bible. Well, now, is that your relationship to Scripture? And isn't it true that sometimes we prefer other books? We prefer J.C. Ryle to the Bible. We prefer Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons to the Bible. And one of the intriguing things about people, you know, is when people tell you what they do for relaxation. Now, when a person relaxes, he does what he loves to do. Do you say, well, I study the Bible because I have to, because it's food for my faith, it's part of my discipline. But when I relax, I do something else. And that whole element of delight has passed away. And we have stopped reading the Bible for pleasure. When we want delight, oh, we do something else. But we go to God's Word for duty and discipline and information. And before we know what we're doing, we are ceasing to love the Word of God. I think we are making a distinction between our religion and our affections. There are never any people who think of having a week's holiday in Aberystwyth in August to go to a, a, a Bible conference or to go to Keswick for a Bible conference. They would never consider Tuesday night, the prayer meeting, a night out. They've lost their commitment to the delights of the word of God, the joy of our devotion. But this man, Psalm 1, the opening of those 150 psalms, his delight is in the law of the Lord, in, in that law he meditates day and night. His pleasure is religion. His chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him. That's his occupation. You come across him and he puts the Bible down. I was at uh, Ira Mill's uh, funeral service on Friday and uh, people talked about going into the home at last that he had to live in, spend his days. And there was a very simple room. There was a single bed. What a symbol of loss that is. And there was his table at the side of the bed with his Bible on it. His Schofield reference Bible that I ever used, of course. He loves the Bible. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That's what the psalmist says. Sometimes it takes our breath away. I was listening to a man read the, the Bible. At the, he, he was announcing his text. He was speaking on mission. And he was reading from Isaiah about the glory of the Lord and the gospel going out into the world. His voice started to go up. Started to go up. He said, oh, he said, that at the beginning I feel like this. Got a handkerchief out, and I, I gave him, he'd forgotten his handkerchief. And I had a packet of uh, tissues in my pocket, and I went across. I was in the front row, and I gave it to him to dry his face. And his voice went back down, and he was moved by the word of God. Moved by it. It's a miraculous book. There's nothing like the power of affection 
to increase our desire. You know, he's a young fellow and uh, uh, he meets a girl in college and she's uh, across from a year from France. He hated French when he was uh, a student. Now he's met her and, oh, there's no one like her. And he's uh, borrowing linguaphone tapes and he's memorizing and learning French. He's motivated by love to learn. Oh, may these heavenly pages be my ever dear delight. And still new beauties may I see. And still increasing light. I think we've done a pretty good job in in defending the authority of scripture. And we've written books about it in the last hundred years. But it's still tough to be under the authority of the word of God rather than under the authority of the world. There's a lot of world that's come into the church. A lot of world affects our thinking and our living. And uh, Paul is saying here, the reason why God has given us the, the, the scriptures is to change us. To make us more like Jesus Christ. To elevate us. To give us purity and holiness and graciousness and patience, and wisdom, and love. And that comes to us from the Bible. It will equip you for everything necessary for your future. Everything that you need. God is calling you to to be a missionary, as he's calling some of you, and some of you thinking of being preachers of the word of God. It'll thoroughly equip you. It will do it. You might not need to go to a seminary if you deeply are grounded, unearthed in the Bible. Lord God, do bless us now and help us not to just be hearers of the word and defenders of doctrine, but those in whom the word of God dwells richly with all wisdom, make us complete, thoroughly furnish us to all the good works in the future. Help us not to grow weary in well-doing, but give us divine energy to serve thee and strength to drink the cup Thou dost give us to drink each day. Help us to see every week as your workmanship for us. To work for you and please you above all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing hymn number 359, Holy Bible, Book Divine, Precious Treasure, Thou art mine, mine to tell me whence I came, mine to teach me what I am, 359.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.